Are you in or around Toronto this August 23rd? If you are, you are legally obliged to attend the screening of Don't Let the River Beats Get You at the Fox Theatre. Yes, it is the classic Matt Farley, Charlie Roxburgh film on the big screen where it deserves to be. Join us for an exclusive intro with Matt and Charlie, as well as a live introduction by Will Sloan, Justin DeClue, and Midnight Madness programmer Peter Kaplowski. Don't miss this amazing opportunity to see the movie the way it's meant to be seen. For more information on the screening of Don't Let the River Beast Get You, or to purchase tickets, visit the Fox Theatre Toronto website. Hello, my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And I've said this before, but I think it's important to say now, my hello that I say in front of every podcast I ever record was stolen from a man named Kevin Smith. Whoa! I said this before. That's how we used to start a Smodcast. We'd be like, hello, welcome to Smodcast. Wow. I mean, I knew that Kevin Smith was in the DNA of this podcast, but I didn't know to what extent he was. But Kevin Smith is in the DNA of every podcast, at least every podcaster of a certain age, you know, guys like us, uh, white men in our early to mid 30s. We were defined by Kevin Smith's movies and by extension, the stuff that he did around his movies. And I think that's why we were so interested in his work is that he was accessible, he was available, and he was very affable in the way that he went about making movies, talking about making movies, especially that self-deprecation stuff. But we're not here to just talk about Kevin Smith today. No, no, no. We're talking about the Kevin Smith extended universe. And we're not talking about the Viewersk universe. So Kevin Smith is maybe the most mentioned director on this podcast. I mean, it's a, it's a little embarrassing to say that, but it's true. Uh, we cannot stop talking about Kevin Smith. For those who don't know his origin story, I'm sure everyone listening to this know his origin story. There could be some young people who don't. There could be some young people, could be some old people if we have any older listeners. There, there's a very specific age range, I think, that Kevin Smith meant a great deal to. But Kevin Smith, a New Jersey-born man, a lower middle class fellow who was working at a convenience store in his early 20s and decided... My big chance at making it will be, what if I make a movie about working at the convenience store? That movie was Clerks. It cost $27,000, and it blew up. It just came at the exact right moment. It was this DIY movie that captured the spirit of Generation X, and it was shot in black and white. Many people observed that it almost looked like like the surveillance footage of the convenience store, and it captured this generational ennui. What's interesting about Clerks is that it's not something that I inherited. Like, no one told me, you have to watch this, this is important, and I forced myself to watch it. I very clearly remember renting the DVD, probably because I read about it on some message board, watching it and being like, I love this movie, and watching it was commentary right after because I wanted to know about the people that made the picture, which is kind of an automatic, like, no-frills push into Kevin Smith's world that I would go right to the commentary track after. Now, I don't think I'm insulting Kevin Smith when I say that one of his appeals as a filmmaker was that he kind of got in through the back door. Like, most people who are filmmakers, especially now, come from great wealth and privilege. You know, oftentimes they had parents who were in the industry. I mean, that's just that's just how it is now. But Kevin Smith was a guy who genuinely kind of fluked into it. And 
never lost his outsider affect. I mean, he was somebody who was like making reasonably budgeted movies that Harvey Weinstein produced. Jennifer Lopez was in one of his movies. Uh, Will Smith was in one of his movies in a small role. I mean, that's the same movie, Jersey Girl. He, he had movies that showed at the Cannes Film Festival. And yet- 15 minutes standing ovations, Will. Never forget what Clerks 2 got at the Cannes Film Festival. And while doing this, he was also the guy who would go on speaking engagements all around the country and tell funny stories about what it was really like like to write a Superman movie for Warner Brothers or to work for Prince. You know, he felt like, I mean, this may be naive to say, but when you were a kid or an early teenager with no connection to the film industry watching him, he sort of felt like our man on the inside, you know? And what's important about Kevin Smith and what is another attraction to him, especially when you're younger and you're watching his movies, you're following his career, is the way that he kept his friends that he had before he made Clerks in his circle for as long as he did. I mean, most of them are still in his circle, like only because of Kevin Smith's heroic um, support of Jason Mewes as he went through drug addiction, alcohol addiction, that the man is standing here to this day. And this episode is about the filmmakers that Kevin Smith basically allowed a chance to make movies. There's a very small number of filmmakers who they kind of came out of nowhere. They created their own little community that that they brought out of nowhere. I mean, Quentin Tarantino did it because Roger Avery directed Killing Zoe. Uh, his other friend directed Boogie Boy that worked at the video archives. I mean, the other example that I think of, they didn't become filmmakers, but John Waters' crew, like Divine, Edith Massey, uh, Susan Lowe, uh, Cookie Mueller. These people became underground fringe celebrities because John Waters hit it big. And none of the movies that we're going to be talking about today did become hits or became, you know, underground, even like favorites of the people in the Kevin Smith universe. But I think they're interesting as kind of offshoots of Kevin Smith's reflections, as well as some people really trying to pull away from the kind of Kevin Smith's identity and trying to do their own thing. And we should take this chronologically, I think, because it should start with a film directed by the guy who basically got Kevin Smith into filmmaking. Because Kevin Smith has always said he wanted to be a writer. He didn't specifically want to be a director. The film is 1997's A Better Place by Vincent Pereira. And if you were a listener to Kevin Smith commentary tracks back in the 90s and 2000s, you'll know Vincent Pereira as the View Askew Historian. Uh, I think he, did he not run the website News Askew? He did. I believe he was very present in the message boards, which I may shock some people when I say that I was not a message board guy in any Kevin Smith thing, which he was very available there. He commented a lot. I think I maybe looked at it once and it was like too intimidating. Like there's so much stuff. But Vincent Pereira uh, was involved in Clerks. He worked in many capacities on those early Kevin Smith movies. He worked at RST Video beside the Quick Stop when Kevin Smith worked. And he's the one who brought Kevin Smith's to, I don't know if it was like the film forum. It was one of those New York theaters and they saw like Slacker. They saw The Dark Backwards, which was a movie that made Kevin Smith go, well, I can make movies too. Like, you know, he always refers to Slacker as being the movie that like, well, if this, if this counts as a movie, if you can make a movie at this, at this low budget with this little spectacle with, with ordinary people like this, well, I could make a movie at my convenience store. And so it's unclear like what Vincent Pereira did on all of the movies up until Jane Silent Bob Strike Back, I believe. That is the split 
between them. And I looked online to see if I could find, like, has it been documented anywhere? Like, why did they split up? Because they seem very close. And I couldn't. I know, and this is going to be embarrassing throughout this podcast, is that I we I have decades of detritus of, like, listening to podcasts uh, <laughs> that Kevin Smith was on. So I know some things. And I vividly remember Vincent Pereira appearing on two episodes of some Kevin Smith podcast. And it seemed very tense between them. Like... Something had happened that had broken them up. It seemed they hadn't talked in a long time. I vividly remember in that podcast, the movie we're about to talk about, A Better Place, Vincent Pereira never made anything else afterwards. And on that podcast, Pereira was like, I just need, you know, this amount of money to make another movie. And Smith is like, I'll give you that money. No problem, dude. And clearly it never happened. But I get the sense that there was probably some jealousy there of like, why does Smith get to be the one who makes the movies when I'm the one who brought him to these movies? Well, I found this week very interesting watching these movies. You know, they varied in quality. I think it's fair to say. Some of them were not very good, but I actually like weirdly left watching these movies with a greater appreciation of Kevin Smith himself. (laughs) I definitely had the trajectory that I think a lot of people of our age have had with Kevin Smith where it's like, oh, you know, we really liked him when we were, you know, teenage boys. And then at some point in our 20s, we kind of like disavowed him. It's like, oh, he's a bad filmmaker. He just, you know, he doesn't know. He doesn't never learned how to make movies. It's just the novelty of them really wore off. He kind of he kind of ran out of things to say. But it's funny seeing his style refracted through these other people. Like most of these movies that we watched are very kind of they, they, they ape his wordy, like rat-a-tat dialogue style that like stylized i think it was amy taubin reviewing clerks who said that kevin smith's dialogue was like david mamet meets howard stern like they all have a little bit of that but like it made me realize that kevin smith does actually have a particular talent like like kevin smith is actually funny he knows how to tell jokes Well, of course he is like he wouldn't be around to this day like just based on nostalgia there's something you know lovable about him that keeps people coming back again and again well people forget that in clerks like the scenes where they're talking about the death star the scenes with all the pop culture references that stuff was actually very novel at the time there weren't a lot of movies up to that point at least not a lot of like widely seen movies that had that sort of like pop culture laden dialogue and you see some of the filmmakers that we're going to talk about today try to ape that and unfortunately like Say what you will about him. Kevin Smith actually did have a particular perspective. It was his own perspective. It was his own set of references. And they were sort of novel at the time. And you see other people try to do that. And they're aping him. You know, they don't quite have it. That said, this movie, A Better Place, I do think is one of the better ones we watch. I think it is as well. And I think it's almost a conscious decision of trying to go against, like you know, the clerk's vibe like the kevin smith pop culture kind of light thing it is a film festival movie in the sense of it's dark it's miserable and it did not get any distribution until its director worked for a dvd company synapse who put it out that's the only reason it's kind of out in the world yeah i mean this movie is slam dance bait if i ever saw it it's set at a high school where a new kid comes into town you know he's skinny he's unpopular everyone hates him except this one guy this one sort of like he seems like a jock initially but he's actually the most antisocial kid in town the two of them form this bond and this sort of jockish kid is a true nihilist he hates all of humanity he thinks he actually thinks that 
the world would be better if there was just mass murder, mass forced abortion, mass sterilization. And he argues this point with the new kid. The new kid realizes that, oh, you know, this is the first friendship I made, but I don't like this guy. <laughs> like, he's miserable. And it goes down a path where violence pops up. And it's a film that it feels like it came post-Columbine. It did not. It came out in 1997, which may have hurt its chances of getting any distribution because it's so reflective of that. Like, it's a little too indebted to Kevin Smith, I think. People talk in that Kevin Smith patter where... People will say it was actually manslaughter at that. But it's missing any pop culture references, which I feel are the gateway into Kevin Smith's movies. So what you do is you have the rhythms of Kevin Smith's dialogue and the kind of working class New Jersey world of it, but without any entry point and only kind of misery and violence to take its place. Yeah, I think ultimately I like this movie. It's a little amateurish. It's a little rough around the edges, but I like it because there feels something real about it. Uh, there feels something real in this perspective of just like two sort of no hope kids. And, you know, you see so many teen movies that are that are not like this. Like this is a movie that actually does kind of like ask questions of like, well, well, is life actually worth living? You know, like these two kids aren't particularly funny or charming. They're just kids and they're kind of living their life and changing their perspective as it goes along. Now, I think one of the issues of the movie is that one of the kids kind of issues is grounded in like his parents committing suicide, which is very uh, operatically portrayed, which I think kind of creates a disconnect in an audience accepting these as, oh, reflections of myself. It doesn't have that clerk's kind of, oh, you know, I love this kind of movie because it's showing me a vision of these could be me and my friends. Yeah, what's good about Clerks and what's also good about this movie when it's at its best is the idea that these people are not at all exceptional. And, you know, what like, what do you do when you're not at all exceptional? Like, to some degree, the darker of the two kids, like, he's he's creating this nihilistic philosophy almost as a coping mechanism to make himself feel exceptional, even though he's not, you know? I would love to know why Vincent Pereira didn't get to make any other movies after this. Like, was the like fight he had with Kevin Smith that big that he couldn't get a little bit of money to make his next movie? Because there's definitely chops in this picture. And while it clearly had difficulties getting distribution you watch it now and you're like oh i see value in that let's see what this filmmaker can do after that and it's just a shame that he fell out of the circle and he was never able to make anything again i think it's just hard to get a movie seen it's hard to get a movie distributed no really yeah, yeah i mean this movie is just a little bit rough around the edges and you hear the dialogue it's not naturalistic obviously but i actually i actually think there's a disconnect between the arch stylized dialogue and the much more naturalistic shooting style one of the reasons clerks works is that it's in black and white it's the one movie where he made his like technical incompetence work for him you know mm -hmm. he, he turned his technical incompetence into a style so the the very stylized dialogue works in harmony with the images in clerks in a way that they never quite did after that and ultimately i think a better place doesn't quite have that harmony nevertheless it's an interesting movie and i'm glad i saw it. i mean it feels like a tv movie that's extra violent but 
there's that passion, like you said, that's there. But I can also understand why it didn't connect with a big enough audience. And it was never going to have a Clerks-like following <laughs> because it's so nihilistic. But I'm glad it's still out there. And pretty much only people I feel like looking into the Kevin Smith universe would go check it out. I actually think this is cool, though. It's like, it's funny that there are certain filmmakers who, you know, create this world around them. You know, film history is vast. Film history has so many hidden corners. You know, Kevin Smith himself is already kind of a hidden corner. But then there's this whole universe to explore in Kevin Smith of just all these like all these weird fringe films that he has his name on. Now, while A Better Place is tied a little bit to Kevin Smith, you see an appearance of the guy who can't find his keys from Clerks appear in the film. The next one, Vulgar. Now, this has Kevin Smith smothered all over it. This film from 2000 was directed by Brian Johnson, who was just one of Kevin Smith's pals that they used to hang out at the rec center, used to go to comic book conventions, And we'll say this as we talk about the next two films. He also feels like a guy that didn't really want to be a director, but here he is directing films, probably under the encouragement of Mr. Kevin Smith. Well, I mean, he probably did want to be a director. I mean, let's put it this way. I think he probably never thought it was even possible to be a director. But he wasn't one of the film guys like Vincent Pereira was. He was just somebody who, you know, in his own words, was kind of lazing around, following his passions. He's not even a comic book guy either. He was just like one of his friends. I'd be fascinated to know how it led to him directing Vulgar. Like, was he lost and he just needed something to do? But this is a film that you feel Kevin Smith is like in the background helping him make, specifically because there are so many cast members. This film not only features Kevin Smith in a supporting role, it also stars Brian O'Halloran. It's shot by Dave Klein, who shot a lot of the early Kevin Smith films. It's also trying to do a different genre than Kevin Smith ever tried to do. An almost like, kind of like grimy 70s exploitation film, but in a way that it feels like the people behind the scenes don't quite know how they want to approach it. Well, can I also just say that Kevin Smith himself has publicly cited this movie as an influence on him when he later made Red State and Tusk. He cited this movie as an influence on his later turn towards, I don't know what you would call those movies, a neo-grindhouse. Anyway, uh, Vulgar is probably the most widely seen and distributed of the movies that we're going to talk about. How did it get so widely distributed? Like, there were copies everywhere at the video stores. Lionsgate put it out i think probably it's just because it has a premise that really catches your attention you can fit it into like it has a kind of exploitation premise you know and we didn't even say the premise which is basically brian o'halloran playing a party clown due to just an absurd situation uh gets sexually assaulted by three men and you know you look at the cover which kind of looks like uh, man bites dog and you'd expect kind of like a grimy miserable thing but the film is structured in such a weird way that it kind of just gets wrapped up in the last 10 minutes not even as dramatically as the cover makes it look like it will i just want to pause on a few points okay so this movie stars brian o'halloran the guy from clerks god love him he tries very hard that's what I'll say about his performance in the film. But yes, he does play a birthday party clown who uh, he's having trouble getting work. Because clown sucks. Nobody likes clowns. Nobody likes clowns. And just just the very the very premise of building a movie around a birthday party clown, like that's when you know the movie has its tongue in its cheek a little bit. Now I looked for the history of you. Do you remember the horrifying logo on Clerks of the party clown that comes out in the fishnet stockings? Because this is basically the movie version of that so it's 
absolutely an inside joke between Kevin Smith and his pals that Brian Johnson decided, all right, let's make a movie version of this. Well, this movie is full of inside jokes for us Kevin Smith heads. Like, it's, it's full of references to Kevin Smith lore. It's full of cameos by the Kevin Smith extended repertory players. Producer Scott Mosier appears as a daytime talk show host, for example. The inciting incident of the film, the reason that anybody ever heard of this movie is because, yes, there is a deliverance type situation on the Brian O'Halloran clown, a brutally extended, almost irreversible like rape scene that is the centerpiece of this film and then in the second half of the movie clown the brian o'halloran clown becomes famous on tv now watching it this time i was like is brian johnson or even kevin smith trying to grapple with their own fame that they came out of nowhere and became famous that's generous do they have (laughs) skeletons in their closet that they're terrified will see the light of day that could perhaps take them down in some way i don't know about that i really don't know why anyone would make this movie i'm genuinely i i don't know what the motivation because it's shocking man shocking i guess like this movie has the vibe of a movie like it feels like the sort of movie that somebody had a deep-seated need to express like you don't you don't make a movie like this unless you desperately needed to make this movie. But then also you look at it and it's like, well, what exactly did you want to express? Like I don't I don't I don't get it. I don't understand it. Because on the face of it, it is by definition kind of an inside joke. It's kind of a black comic premise. It's kind of a like, ha ha, like it's a provocation is what it is. Like I always heard this movie referred to as the clown rape movie. Okay, that's the pitch. You know, in your circles of friends, that's how you talked about it. More online, I would say. <laughs> but then, like, so much of it just plays as dead serious drama, and like, not good drama. Well, I mean, Brian O'Halloran's character lives in a hell world where people are constantly yelling at him, throwing beer bottles at him, just a terrible wasteland, which you could almost, again, I'm being very generous, uh, describe as stylized. Yeah. So I, I just. I mean, I think I think it's a terrible movie. I'll be honest. I was hope I had seen this one before, and I was hoping you knew it was a terrible movie that you didn't like before we got into this. I'm always hoping to enjoy do it. Do I own the DVD? Of course I do. <laughs> Bought at Rogers Video in probably the mid 2000s. Well, the DVD is amazing because you'll recall that it has a very unique bonus feature, which is they put the rejection letter from every film festival that rejected it on the DVD. Mm-hmm. Although the Toronto International Film Festival did play this they movie. Did? Yes. Wow. I'm sure probably because Kevin Smith himself appearing was like the carrot on the stick, right? Which would make you think that this film would play at more places with Kevin Smith's brand of approval and, you know, him showing up as well to help it along. Important to remember that Kevin Smith's stock was pretty high when this one came out. Like Lionsgate released this kind of on the heels of Dogma. And you'll recall that the DVD for Vulgar includes a bonus feature that was just a making of featurette for dogma i do know that it's writer director brian johnson did have a pretty rough time after this and he like struggled with drug addiction for a long time i I believe it was opioids but he's back he has a podcast with walt flanagan all you kevin smith heads you know walt flanagan and brian johnson because they appear in cameos in the kevin smith movies because they go tell him steve dave and that's what the name of the podcast that they have which is very successful uh i just looked at it recently they've been you know, regularly putting episodes out. Anyway, I'm not mad at Vulgar. I'm, I am I don't hate it. No, me neither. I, I guess I do kind of hate it. <laughs> but I just, I'm just more than anything curious. I still, having now seen it twice in my misspent life, I'm wondering, like, why? But are you 
angrier at it than the next movie we're going to talk about, Now You Know, who, which seemingly has no reason to exist. We just talked about Brian O'Halloran. and now we're going to talk about the other clerk, Jeff Anderson. Oh, and we did point out that uh, Brian Johnson was the inspiration for Randall, like the attitude of Randall, the talking back of Randall. And what do we have here? Now You Know, a film directed by Randall himself. Jeff Anderson. This movie was completed and played some festivals in 2002, but it was not widely distributed on DVD until 2006 when the Weinstein Company picked it up and released it on DVD, I think the same week as Clerks 2. Mm. So it, it was very much riding the Kevin Smith wave. In fact, the opening title card of this film actually says, Kevin Smith presents Now You Know. Now, again, I don't know Jeff Anderson, so I don't know if he wanted to be a filmmaker. Watching this movie, it seems like, eh, maybe not so much. Could this film have been a way of Kevin Smith's, like, buttering Jeff Anderson up to appear in Jan Silent Bob uh, Strike Back? Because after Clerks, I believe Jeff Anderson and Kevin Smith were kind of a little bit on the outs. He did show up in Dogma as a gun salesman. I believe they had a falling out. Uh, because of money. And they would also have a falling out after this movie, and it tanked Clerks 3 like two weeks before they started shooting the original version of Clerks 3, not the one that's coming out. Well, anyway, Now You Know is a Jeff Anderson uh, writing, directing vehicle. What you can say about this movie is that it's mediocre. It's the most ordinary indie dramedy you've ever seen. If Kevin Smith's name wasn't on it, it would be impossible to see because it wouldn't be on sale anywhere. Like DVDs wouldn't be in stock. It would just kind of exist. I don't hate this movie or anything. The, the no, I don't hate it. It's fine. It, it stars uh, Jeremy Sisto and Rashida Jones. Uh, that's right. They got Rashida Jones for this movie, for God's sake. And they play a couple who are just on the eve of their wedding, except that, uh-oh, she suddenly decides to dump him with no explanation. So most of the movie is spent going back and forth between these two characters and their social circles as they discuss relationships. And the movie's insights into relationships will not be a surprise to you. Relationships are hard. It's very easy to take your partner for granted. These are true and reasonable points. Uh, you will hear them a lot in this movie. You won't have a lot to look at. It's not very funny. The dialogue is wordy, like a Kevin Smith movie, but it's not uh, particularly clever. And the scenes where people do pop culture references feel like painful attempts to simulate the Kevin Smith style. Does a dog get run over by a lawnmower for some of those early 2000s laughs? Of course it does. In one of the most protracted scenes of the movie, where it's like, this dog's going to be eaten by this lawnmower. Watch out. Here it comes. Here it comes. Here it is. No one's laughing. Again, I don't know if Anderson felt particularly passionate. I mean, it takes a lot of passion to make a movie. Like, you don't really get forced into one of those things. And so maybe this was a story he felt the need to tell. But it's not there on screen. I will just set it all, you know, the same that I would. Not many laughs. No one is very endearing either. It's long. <laughs> and eventually you're like, ah, we've reached the end. I would just say again, if you want to get a new respect and appreciation for Kevin Smith as a filmmaker, check this one out. Otherwise, just don't check it out. Let it fall back into the oblivion where it deserves to be. <laughs> All right. So the last one is a film directed by Malcolm Ingram, Toronto's own Malcolm Ingram, who became friends with Kevin Smith when he was a writer for Film Threat. I believe he wrote a review for Clerks, and then he visited the Mallrat set. They hit it off because he made a film called Drawing Flies that was definitely made 
with Kevin Smith's assistance because uh, Jason Lee's in it, a bunch of other uh, View Askew members or cast members. But we didn't watch that movie. I have that on DVD as well. I know I'm not a fan of it. So we didn't want to just have a bunch of movies where we're like, oh, we didn't really like these. So instead, we watch his documentary, Small Town Gay Bar. This one came out in 2006, and it's a look into gay bars in the Deep and South. And you can guess that if you are a gay bar in the Deep South, it is not a very welcoming place for the people that would attend your establishment. So we see a couple of different gay bars in you know various states of repair and disrepair. We meet a lot of the clientele. We meet the owners. Important to remember that this movie was made and released during kind of the height of the Bush era, during a time when same-sex marriage was very much a hot-button issue. Honestly, I'd love to see him do a sequel to this now, during the current moment when there's a whole new culture war surrounding uh, trans people and so-called grooming. But it's a great time capsule of this one particular time. And you do really get a sense in this movie of these bars as like, you get a sense of how dangerous it can be to be a gay person in the deep south at the time you can you get a sense from hearing from these people just how dangerous it can be to like walk from the car to the bar you know you're genuinely at risk of being hurt but then you do it anyway because you have to go to this bar like it's the only place where you can really be yourself because even with all the kind of misery that surrounds all the people that appear in this documentary it is a film about joy and about finding your people and how that's so important and however you can do it if you can get it you need to hold on to it because it can make life worse living. And I think what's important about this documentary, within the context of all the films that we've talked about, is that it's the one that you feel that the filmmaker, while being helped by Kevin Smith, this film was also edited by Scott Mosier, Kevin Smith's partner in crime, it's one that's disconnected from anything that he's done. Not just by being a documentary, but also by being a very clear perspective from Malcolm Ingram, which I should note that we hung out during a day, I believe handing out advertisements for when Kevin Smith came to the Bloor and did talks. So he drove me around, we handed stuff out, Super fun. He was like, ah, oh, Justin, we should hang out later. We never did. Is this the backdoor way to hang out with Malcolm Ingram again? <laughs> that he hears this and we're like, oh yeah, small town gay bars. Great. No, that's not what I was planning to do. But <laughs> And I think that if you look at his filmography, he kind of figured out, okay, this is what I want to do because he then made a documentary about uh, Bear Nation. He made a film about the Continental, the uh, New York... City Continental Bass from 1968 to 1976, just documenting that period. Unfortunately, that documentary seems to be completely unavailable, not released anywhere. I'd love to see it. He also just recently directed a documentary about Kevin Smith. Oh boy. Called Clerk, which I have seen and I'm sorry to say is not that great. Although, hey, listen, I get it. You, you want to pay tribute to your friend? I think that's lovely. One for them. Small Town Gay Bar is feels very personal and is worth seeing. An interesting time capsule of this time. And also, like, it's interesting because you get an actual sense of what the community is like in a completely different part of the world. Like, in the Deep South, you get the sense that these gay bars are real big tent coalitions. In in a big metropolitan area, um, it's possible to have a lot of different niche gay culture. But at this bar, like, this is the only spot. And I think it's still a worthwhile document to watch, to see this, which is still going on in parts of the United States. I mean, I'm not intimately familiar with it, but that's why these documentaries are so good, because it allows you to just get these slices of life from these people. And while it does have some stuff that's like, oh, my God, I can't believe I have to watch this because it's so just painful and miserable. There's 
it the joy kind of overpowers that. And I think that that's why a documentary like this is so important and seemingly could only exist thanks to the help of someone like Kevin Smith, of Malcolm Ingram being in the circle and, you know, being able to, you know, peel off and do his own thing, which is super good to see. So anyway, you know, Kevin Smith, he continues to, I mean, he's had many movies that he has uh, helped finance or has shepherded into release. I think one of the better ones is Matt Johnson's The Dirties. A lot of other ones that you probably haven't heard of or don't remember. Well, he did try to do his own kind of like Smodcast Pictures distribution label, but that fell through maybe five movies in and then you could find those films at the dollar store. I mean, it's tough. It's hard. And uh, I, I give him I give him credit for trying to do that every now and then. And, and you know, I, I just saw that he bought a movie theater in New Jersey that that he wants to turn into a part rep cinema, part film school. He's uh, having contests now to for people to, you know, send their amateur movies for some prize money, you know, whatever. Like, you know, there, there's a there's a lot that I don't care for in him. But then he also, I think, genuinely hasn't forgotten where he's come from and tries to pay it forward. And I do respect that. Let's be honest with each other. There's no movie of his that's going to be released that you're not going to see, right? Well, well, I know that I'm going to go see Clerks Three when that comes out. I mean, you know, it's funny. I don't, I don't think at this point there's a Kevin Smith movie I really like, except maybe for Clerks. You like Clerks? Well, I haven't seen it in a long time. That's the thing. That's why I say maybe because I had a rough last year of of watching i watched chasing amy i watched mall rats and it was kind of like oh god these ones aren't too good so now i'm almost afraid to revisit clerks i almost want to keep it as a perfect object in my memory but you love listening to those commentary tracks so you're still in the bag for kevin smith yeah i mean we should say that the reason that we got the idea for this episode is because when we were driving back from pennsylvania a week or two ago uh, Justin was just putting Kevin Smith commentary tracks on the Bluetooth. And, uh, oh, man, was I having a good time hearing my old friend Kevin. Will was like, you got to do more commentary tracks than just one. Give everybody a chance to talk. <laughs> All right. So as per usual, you can send us letters at Porn Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter goes, gentlemen, do you have any guesses as to what changes to the canon will be revealed in the upcoming 2022 Sight and Sound list? Thank you, Bose. Sinjin. P.S. I want it noted for the record that I was your first Patreon subscriber. Great work, boys. Wow. Thank you very much. Changes to the canon. Well, I do know that the voting pool is expanded this year and that there are a lot of younger voters. Well, I didn't get my ballot. What the hell? You should have. I'm sorry. We have some friends who were like... Oh, wow, I got a ballot. Sweet. <laughs> I never applied for this. Then there were, there were people like me who had to work a little harder to get a ballot. Crawl uh, from <laughs> broken glass, if you will, to get one. Uh, nevertheless, uh, given these changes, I don't know. It, it could come out and Vertigo might be number one and Citizen Kane might be number two again. Oh, wow. Shocking. Let's write a bunch of articles about it. If I were to hazard a guess, though... I mean, I would not be surprised to see David Lynch rise dramatically. I genuinely don't know what the canon will look like. And does it even matter? That's another question. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, as me and Will were talking about, like, the people who vote for it, it's, you know, it's the weirdos at the fish store, like the Simpsons joke. It's like, oh, wow, these people. Do you respect most of these critics? I mean, some of them I do, but the majority, we probably don't, right, Will? Justin was telling me this when I was feeling very sad because I thought I wasn't going to get a ballot. <laughs> but then you did. Then I did. <laughs> now I'm the 
the weirdo at the fish store. And fulfilled, right, Will? <laughs> yeah, all my problems have been solved. It's great. I can't predict what the new canon will look like, but I'm sure we'll talk about it when that happens, because it is just interesting to see what movies rise and fall. Like, uh, We can predict that uh, probably one movie will have two votes that has never appeared on the Sight and Sound list. I wonder what it could be. But yeah, w- will will the searchers stay in the top 10? I don't know. I'm very curious. Who cares? Like, I just want it. It'd be cool if it was completely upended and like new movies showed up new movies in the sense that they came out a couple years ago but like people were voting differently but let's be honest it's probably most of the old guard who voted the last few decades right so i don't know how it works how they get fresh blood in but we'll see so our next letter is from gwen smith and she goes hello boys Love the show for a number of years, and I think your podcast is one of the best out there. Well, thank you. A podcast that is both well-informed on the history of cinema, but also accessible and fun. As a result, you guys have been the most recurring podcast over several boring minimum wage jobs. We're like the new Smodcast. Because I remember listening to Kevin Smith at my terrible minimum wage jobs. And the letter continues. One of my favorite aspects of your podcast has you guys balance discussions of political and historic aspects of work while also grounding these aspects in questions of film craft style and whether or not you enjoyed the film. To get to my question, do you guys think about balancing these two impulses in your podcast on places like Twitter where there tends to be a sea of either very political didactic criticism or other people who wrongly insist art and politics are totally separate. In my own attempts at writing film criticism, I often worry if I'm doing too much of the former or latter, either just reviewing films for how much they agree with my politics or neglecting politics influence on art in its entirety. Do you guys ever struggle with this? I know you two have talked about loving critics like Jay Haberman and Robin Wood, who also were, are very skillful to asking political questions about films. So are they or any other theorists, critics, whatever, in the front of your head when doing episodes? Or is it just how you guys naturally approach movies whatever you guys are doing it works very well for the record it's a breath of fresh air and a sea of poorly thought out film twitter hot takes do you think about the political perspective when you talk about a movie on the import cinema club will i mean i absolutely do obviously i think about politics in relation to film all the time just as i think i think about politics in relation to all sorts of things all the time i mean i actually do think it's an interesting question of like how much leeway do you give uh, a movie whose politics you don't agree with because you like the form or the style and to what extent does the style and the politics intertwine i actually i don't think there's any one like easy answer to that well when we often talk about movies we approach them from the very kind of basic did we like them or did we not what was our reaction to them and i think that can be influenced by the political background of the people that are making it but also we have to be realistic and say that we'd have to toss out about 95% of the things that we talk about if they didn't agree perfectly with our politics. Because that's not how movies can be made because of the way and the amount of money that has to go behind them. So if for us to just dismiss stuff that we politically don't agree with, I think would be impossible for us to talk about particular films. And I don't think I can say that I've agreed with films that I politically agree with if I don't enjoy them or can find something stimulating in them. I guess I take it on a case-by-case basis. Uh, Let's maybe put it this way. Forrest Gump is a movie that I think is a very reactionary uh, conservative film, and I hate it. But it's satire, Will. Listen, I'm making my hot takes here like people always do. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure the novel's better. I do hate it for its politics. Death Wish 3 is a movie that is even more reactionary 
And I love Death Wish 3. So I don't know what to do with or that. Or even Wolf Warrior 2. That film has awful politics as well. A new thing that is even more insidious because, you know, it's present, it's now. But man, we had a blast when we saw that movie. Hooting and all around. And then you look at a movie like, say, I don't know, Triumph of the Will. Ah, yeah, we love Triumph of the Will. Oh, who, who doesn't just kick back on a Friday night and watch Triumph of the Will? But like, that's a movie that is... I think anyone would agree a very skillful articulation, a, a very skillful visual articulation of a philosophy and a, a political point of view that I think is abhorrent. And I don't like it. I, I guess all I can say is I take it on a case by case basis. Mm-hmm. You just gotta, you know, wow us. And then if you, you know, throw in a bunch of crazy camera moves like an I am Cuba, we're like, ah, yes. Good politics and stylistically impressive. Lord knows there are movies with good politics that are also boring as hell. That That's also true. Most movies with good politics are boring as hell. <laughs> like, let's be honest. And then there are movies like, I don't know, the aforementioned The Searchers, which has very um, uh, difficult politics. Problematic. Problematic, but like... The, the politics can't really be, like, pinned in any one direction, and that makes it interesting. So, I don't know. So, thank you very much for that letter. Movies are a land of contradictions, All is right, what I I'm trying say. to wrap up here, Will. Thank okay. you very much for that letter, Quinn. <laughs> All right. So, as per usual, you can send us letters on Podcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club, we're talking about King Kong, the big man himself. Okay, we're talking about King Kong, the big man himself for the first time ever. And it's taken a long time to get to this topic, probably because it is one of the most covered films in the history of film. That's not directed by Alfred Hitchcock. But of course, we're going to be bringing fresh perspective to it, saying stuff like, ah, man, those stop motion effects and other things in that vein. So check it out. Patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. So next week on the podcast, we are going to be talking about one of the leading lights of black exploitation cinema. The Hammer himself. If I can tell you a personal anecdote, I did once interview this man and I used the word black exploitation and he did not like it. Ooh, yeah. He said, who's being exploited? There's nothing, there's nothing ex- exploitational about it. And I said, uh, whatever you say, sir. Anyway, his name is Fred Williamson. He's one of the stars of that Black Cinema Wave, but he is also a filmmaker, a producer. He grabbed the means of production himself and guided his career in the direction that he wanted it to go. And so when the, for want of a better term, black exploitation wave ended in the mid-1970s, he went around the world continuing to make movies, uh, continuing to build his brand. He never again quite achieved the level of stardom he had in the early 70s, but he kept working, and you gotta hand it to him. And in reference to the last letter, I'm glad that Fred Williamson has very good politics that I... Oh no! (laughs) I just looked it up! (laughs) Yes. We'll get into that in the episode. So, until next week, my name's Justin LeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank some of our new patrons who include William T. Klugel, Nick Romaniello, Stephen Kielbach, Jack Anzul, Agripna the Younger, Eric Hefter, Craig Lewis, Yevon Gordon, Ryan Rilea, Benjamin Vaughn, and Zachary Hollingsworth. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not do it without you. And now, 
back to our regular scheduled programming. Well, one of us is touring the world right now, going to all the big movie sites. Right, Will? Well, not all the big movie sites. I'm broadcasting, would you believe it, from Florence, Italy. Oh, wow. I mean, just yesterday you were under the Tuscan sun. Now you're in Florence, Italy. I just saw a street caricaturist at one of the tourist spots, and one of the drawings that he had at his booth was of Roberto Benigni. Wow, he's still in the public consciousness that much. I am soaking in film culture. You're uh, visiting all the Benini hotspots. You're like, wow, that's where he shot Pinocchio. Anyway, a couple of days ago, I was in Geneva, Switzerland, took a day trip to Vevey. And why did I go to Vevey? I went so that I could go to Charlie Chaplin's house, which has been turned into a museum called Chaplin's World. After he was denied re-entry into the United States in 1952, he spent his last 25 years in Switzerland, where he tended to his brood, worked on various projects, but mostly just took it easy at this palatial estate on one of the mountains in Vevey. Ah, his Xanadu, where he essentially slowly died. (laughs) I mean, we all die, but specifically Chaplin wasn't doing too much during those later years. Anyway, I've been dreaming about going to this place for years. I just had such a great time. They have the house, and there are a couple of rooms in on the main floor that are sort of like perfectly preserved. Uh, like, I've been seeing these rooms in Chaplin documentaries for years, like uh, the sitting room and the study and the dining room where he and his brood had dinner at 6.15 p.m. every night. Where Chaplin was silent and offered no love to his children. I just sat there, like, soaking in these rooms. I overheard one person say, huh, it's just a, just a pretty normal house. And were you like, how dare you? Well, I thought, yeah, I guess it is a pretty normal house, isn't it? That's what you would want. Like, you don't want, like, Chaplin gags popping out of the walls or anything like that. Oh, well, hang on, though. I know. There's a whole other separate part of of Chaplin's world that's like the Chaplin amusement park, where, like, you you go in and then you go down to the sub-level where there are wax dummies of, like, there's a wax Sophia Loren from Countess from Hong Kong. There's a wax Buster Keaton. Even better than that, there's some wax dummies of people he influenced. So, uh, Roberto Benigni, again, there's a wax Roberto Benigni. There's a wax Michael Jackson. There is a wax Woody Allen. Did Will take a photo with all of them? Of course he did. Check his Twitter for those pictures. <laughs> of course I did. And then there's... There's one room where, like, you can go, you know, the, the cabin from the gold rush and the way that it, like, tilts over the over the side of the cliff? You can go in that. There, there's a cabin that, like, moves up and down, you know? And wasn't there a wax statue of Charlie Chaplin getting into a bathtub I saw you take a photo with? Okay, this is in the master bathroom in the main house. You can see Chaplin's bedroom where the magic happened. And then next to it is the bathroom where there's a full wax size... There's a full-sized wax dummy of Chaplin from a king in New York, like, doing shtick by the bathtub. And I'm just there having a great time. It's like, we're having bath time with Charlie, and it's fun. Did you look around the room and just wonder how much seed that Chaplin had was just sprayed across this room all over the place? It is something to be in the great man's bathroom. They took they took out the toilets in the bathrooms that were on display. Probably because people were shitting in them, I bet. Probably. But then it creates this almost, like, eerie sense that, wait, did... Did Chaplin need to go to the bathroom? Was 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 he such a genius that he had transcended the need? So did you learn anything going here? Or did you come away with even a feeling that you didn't have before visiting his home? Oh, I mean, I definitely came away with a feeling. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if you folks have been to Vevey, Switzerland, but I do recommend it. It's 
uh, a gorgeous place to retire as a rich man. Well, some of us can't afford to go on worldwide trips, but <laughs> when we can, we will. I do have to say that the one thing I know that Will came out of after the uh, seeing all of this Chaplin stuff was, I got to expand my article on Billy West. I've been doing some deep, deep Billy West research in in my spare time over here. So we're we're gonna get we're gonna get a new Billy West. By the way, if you didn't listen to a previous episode, yeah, it was a Patreon episode. Right, he was the most prolific Charlie Chaplin impersonator, and I've been going into the archives. I've been. Uh, searching archive.org and i've been finding out some incredible new things about billy west so stay tuned you found some gold on billy west that like stuff that you feel should be in the history books and aren't and only through your deep digging i mean that's why you're there going through the swiss archives looking for billy west articles uh, let me just put it this way folks there was long a rumor that uh, Charlie Chaplin saw Billy West filming on the street one day and went over and said, you're a, you're a hell of an imitator. And maybe that happened, maybe it didn't. But I do know that they had more dealings than that. They may have even spoken multiple times because Will found documents confirming this fact. But that's, we'll leave it up in the air to, I'm sure, the upcoming... Well, who would publish an article on Billy West? <laughs> we'll mention <nudge a> video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, CinemaScope. Yeah, I don't know. We'll find out. But you're, you're going you're gonna to hear more about Billy West in the Can future. Can you imagine if we did a Billy West Gold Ninja video <laughs> Well, actually, I think we could because I've collected a few 8mm films. Of Billy West? <laughs> of Billy West. Wow, I didn't know you had West. Okay, coming up in the future. Ah, so much uh, tantalizing oh, hints. Oh, I can't coming wait. Coming your way. <laughs> <laughs>